So, God among other gods. Um, this is our, our final, um, you know, talk in this series. Hopefully this, this summer has uh, encouraged you and also changed the way that you interact with God uh, on a daily, weekly basis. If it hasn't, go back and listen to some of them. Uh, our goal, though, for this next semester, particularly in our small groups, is to continue this type of thinking. Uh, is to really encourage you to do that in ways that are a lot more practical and where we can kind of talk about it on a small group level. And so we'll take the sermon series and try to apply that to your life in our small groups this, uh, this fall. Okay? So, um, God among other gods. Well, obviously there's no possible way in the next 15 or 20 minutes that I could you know, explain how the God of you know, you know, the Jewish folks and Christian folks in the scripture is unique and different from the God or gods portrayed in other religions. Um, this is not possible. I mean, I, I could even get through like probably two effectively. So I'm not going to do that. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, to kind of inform you of an argument that uh, is, has gotten pretty heated, particularly in our day and age. And that is the question of what constitutes salvation, okay? And how does God save people? And particularly in a pluralistic society like ours, whenever we, you, know, you hear the term pluralism, that just means plural, multiple, multiple views. Uh, some of us don't quite appreciate that most humans who have ever lived in the world have lived with a dominant worldview that was pretty much given to them and there wasn't really much choice in how they thought of it. Maybe there were some slight distinctions within that worldview, okay? And by worldview, I mean just how you view the world. We live in a day and age, though, where the options are innumerable, okay? I mean, you know, everywhere you go, your worldview is being challenged, even in a Christian society like ours. And that's what pluralism means. It just means that you're uh, exposed to a variety of different worldviews and opinions. And so your worldview is constantly being challenged and or, um, you know, maybe even you, you feel pressured and forced to kind of come to this ultimate conclusion, which is in my mind the ultimate cop-out, uh, uh, well, all are just sort of the same, so let's just sort of get on with our lives and not think of religion as very important. And so when we cover the four major world religions in uh, the fall of Christianity, uh, Islam, uh, Hinduism, and then Buddhism, actually Buddhism is a pretty small percentage of our world. used to be a little bit bigger, but the biggest group that's entered into the space of the top five world religions is the, the religion of none. N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. Meaning that this is the fastest growing, when I talk about Christian nuns in my classes, I never remember to say N-O-N-E-S, and I don't write on the board much. And people for the longest time in that class period are, are picturing in their mind like nuns, like N-U-N-S. So now I always try to preface it. Nuns, the N-O-N-E, the, the non-affiliated folks, they make up the third largest group now worldwide. So after Christianity, which has about 2.1 billion adherents, uh, and uh, Islam, which has about 1.3 billion, and Islam is growing much faster than Christianity is, the nuns, or N-O-N-E-S, make up slightly less than a billion adherents. It's a big group. Now, within that category, a lot of them actually are Christians or Hindus or Buddhists. They just don't generally want to affiliate with it. They still have a worldview that looks very much like the worldview that they've adopted uh, when they were younger. But, nonetheless, they still affiliate as none. And that's becoming more and more popular. Well, that, in my mind, is a result of pluralism to some degree. 
when folks begin to think that, you know, well, okay, they're all pretty much the same, and I understand that argument, it makes sense, um, then, you know, we, we, there's no real reason to sort of put a label on exactly what it is we are. This is the majority of people you're going to interact with that aren't religious in our society, or that say they aren't religious. They come from a non-affiliated background, and, and we'll talk about that uh, uh, you know, quite a bit in our fall class, because there aren't very many good books written on this group of people, because it's an emerging group. And it's a very diverse group of people. But it is the fastest growing religious group in our society. And so it's important. In fact, in U.S. society, the two largest groups now are NONES, which makes up almost 20% of our society, one out of five, and evangelicals, which whatever the heck that means. We may be them, we may not be them. I haven't even decided yet. Um, Which makes up about one out of four. Uh, in terms of U.S. society. So between Christians, evangelicals, and N-O-N-E-S, they make up a good half of our society. Yeah? Um, is the none group the same or different than the atheists? Well, so the, it's different. I mean, atheists is a, is a very, very, very teeny tiny proportion. Mm-hmm. But uh, probably a, a lot of N-O-N-E-S nuns are, would consider themselves as, as agnostic. Um, which is, is different than atheism, right? You know, agnostic is just like, I don't know, really. Atheism, no, definitely not. Okay. Although that's not necessarily a fair distinction. We don't have time for this. This is not a class. I'm, I'm preaching. What is this interactive stuff you guys got going on? Not appropriate, okay? Preaching. Preaching. I'm preaching. Okay, so let me give you two key ideas that kind of back up um, the argument, I think, that, or at least that give you some sense of what this academic argument is and, and then I want to give you a really non-academic assignment where we're going to just kind of, you know, you pick a scripture to read talk through it really easily and then we'll, uh, we'll move on. Okay? So two key ideas. The first idea is what's called general and special revelation. Revelation. Rebel, with the B. Revelation. Okay? Uh, no, just kidding. It's with a V. Revelation. And the, the basic theology here is just that general revelation uh, is that God has revealed himself sufficiently enough to where all mankind and womankind has the ability to seek after him or respond to his revelation. All right, general revelation. A lot of folks point to like Romans 1 in the passage where you know the stars and the skies are enough to tell us that God exists, which, okay, yeah, we don't have time much for that, but I don't know about you. The last time I looked at the sun and stars, you know, I mean, you know, you could just as much have a very scientific worldview as a result of that than as you could a God worldview. So in our interpretation of that, I'm not so sure we always understand what's being said. But anyway, general revelation. And then we've got special revelation, which basically just means Jesus. That God has given us something more than just the created order of things, but something specific in Jesus that's special. And the real question always comes down to what revelation do you need to be saved? Do you have to have special revelation? Revelation? Do you have to have this understanding of Jesus? Or can general, uh, general revelation get you there? Now, a lot of the, the arguments center around these two main ideas. Any questions about that? Or is that kind of clear somewhat? Yeah? General revelation, special revelation? What did you say? <laughs> Um, so, you've got the polar extremes here of this debate. You've got the universalists, right? And you've got the exclusivists. And the exclusivists believe that general revelation is enough to condemn someone, okay? Right? 
But special revelation is the only way to salvation. General revelation cannot save someone. Got to have that special revelation, meaning it's in Christ alone, right? Universalism says general revelation is not only sufficient for salvation, but anyone and everyone can experience God's general revelation through anything, really, whether the natural order or other religions. And these are the two polar opposites, right, in terms of the thinking. So exclusivism, meaning we're you know, exclusively Jesus have to profess his name, have to know him, have to have a relationship with them. And universalists, you know, uh, so one of the most famous universalists is John Hicks, who's probably one of the more influential, maybe most influential uh, religious philosophers of the last uh, hundred years. And uh, he believes that Jesus is just one manifestation of God, you know, in the way the Buddha is or the way that Muhammad is, uh, truly universalist, that Christianity doesn't have anything really unique about it insofar as he sees himself as being a Christian, but he also sees patterns of salvation in other religions. Okay? So those are the two extremes. Yeah? Some of you get lost? No? You okay so far? I mean, I'm teaching, you know, a very difficult thing here in a few moments. And if this is something you're interested in looking through and, and uh, studying more, lots of resources I can give you, even if it's just articles. You're like, not book interested in studying it, you're like, article interested in studying it. I can give you your... I can satiate whatever amount of curiosity you have, okay? Uh, not me particularly, but giving you resources. Okay, so, so that means that we're on this sort of salvation spectrum. And on the spectrum, on the one end, we've got the exclusivists, and we've got the universalists. Well, most Christians in the U.S. are somewhere in the middle of these two, okay? They don't go to one of the two extremes. And it's the mediating positions that often... Uh, you know, cause the most amount of conflict and fighting. Uh, because people are ultimately arguing in this gray area of, of how, uh, you know, what constitutes salvation and how does God use Christianity or even any other religion to, to sort of save people, okay? And so, within this, this view, there's on the one hand, inclusivists, okay, <laughs> which are, the best way to think about this is they want to include everybody, right? It's an inclusivist view. So, one of the guys that's gotten into a lot of trouble in the last, like, five years for his inclusivist view, if you're interested in all this kind of stuff, is Rob Bell, right? The guy that writes all those, you know, cool videos that we all loved until we found out he was an inclusivist. <laughs> we're like, we can't watch that anymore, man. That's not Christian. Uh, but, okay... Then you've got the particularist view. Now, the particularist view is closer to the, uh, you know, exclusivist view. And the inclusivist view is closer to the universalism view, right? I mean, it makes some sense. Here's another way of looking at it. Everyone in the middle is agnostic <laughs> about their views of how God works through other religions. They don't know. They're not the exclusivists who say definitely only through Jesus. And the universalists who say definitely through any religion, they're agnostic. That's a really fun way of putting it. Agnostic. They just don't know. They, they're willingly saying, I don't know how God works. On the inclusivism side, you could call them optimistic agnostics. They're generally pretty optimistic about God probably works through other religions. Okay? And saves a lot of people who we might not think he would save. And then on the other end, you know what's coming? Pessimistic agnostics. It's like, well, can God do it? Sure. But is he going to? Probably not. Okay? 
And so we have, in the particularist view, a pessimistic agnosticism, meaning a negative view of I don't know, and a positive view of I don't know. Now that's the best, most clear way, without drawing, I should have drawn that, I know, I'm sorry. Some of you are like, you're kidding me, I'm going to write this in text. Um, this, this is, is, is the best, most simplest way to take a lot of those complex theories and conflicts and ideas and distill them down into a, a quick understanding. Any questions on that before we move completely into another gear and, uh, and, and talk about why it is that I think it's okay to be in the middle? Question? You got one? No, you really Questions? Yes? No? Don't pay much attention, guys, to like all the specific terms. That's that, it, like in anything technical, remember the jargon isn't that helpful. What's helpful is just to recognize some people are on the end of has to hear the name of Jesus, has to profess him, have to have a relationship with him, and on the other side, Jesus is just one of many manifestations of God, uh, and then there's these mediating positions. Yes? I follow all of that, but where is this leading? Like, what was the overall topic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just confused. Zinging. Yeah, like, Zinging me, man. like you told her to ask that. So no. Like, well, what's the point? Yeah. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I get it. I just don't know where it's how many credit hours is it? Oh man, that's good stuff. So, question. Okay. Is this a serious one or is it another joke? Let me rephrase your question. So are you going to tell us what the Bible actually says about this? Or are you just going to come up with your own ideas? Because what I believe is what the Bible says about it. Okay? And that's all I really want to hear. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, this, remember this is not, we're not talking about, uh, you know, salvation. It's just impossible to talk about God among other gods without, you know, uh, talking about this, this, this idea of salvation. So, so, for instance, both the particularist and inclusivist believe that you can only be saved through Christ alone. Uh, in the same way the inclusivists think that you can only be saved in Christ alone. They just believe this looks very different. To say that someone can be saved through Christ without actually having a direct relationship with him and a complete understanding of him, that's where the arguments become. And that's what I meant when I said there's a lot of conflict within this view, is what does it even mean to say? I mean, pretty much anybody who's not a universalist believes that you have to be saved through Christ alone. The question is just, what the heck does that phrase mean? What did it mean to Paul? What did it mean to Peter? What did it mean to Jesus himself when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Okay, It's not as simple as that. And so, uh, anyway, no, that's not what I'm going to talk about at all. Um, what I am going to talk about, though, is I'm going to give you five passages, and you can break up in groups of two if you want, ten, I don't really care. And you can choose any of these passages you want, whatever you want. I'm only going to give you like ten minutes. And I want you to answer, answer, uh, <laughs> want to answer two different questions, which are pretty easy questions, guys. The first one is, how does God feel about, and actually, it's just one question now that I think about it. How does God feel about and treat outsiders. That's it. 
In psychology, for any of you who've taken psychology, you, you know that uh, in one of my favorite fields in uh, psychology is something called heuristics, which are these sort of like natural errors in our thinking. I don't know if any of you have studied this or not, but it's super fun. I love it. I'm like obsessed with it. And one of the errors is what's called in-group, out-group bias, where we tend to uh, elevate the character of people in our in-group and uh, denigrate or lower the character of people in our our group. Every human does this, guys. It doesn't matter whether you're a soccer player versus a rugby player or like a woman versus a man. Whatever group you feel like you belong to, you have a natural tendency to look down on people outside of your group and elevate the people inside your group. Okay? It's just as simple as that. To be human is to do this. We could ask all day long why it's related to survival and all these other things, and who cares? The point is that we have a natural tendency to uh, think highly of people we in groups we belong to and think lowly uh, or lower of people in groups that we don't belong to, outsiders. So I wanted to give you these five passages. These are definitely passages you can go back through and understand and think through and, and talk through on your own time. But for now, I just want you to pick one and one only. And as a group, I just simply want you to ask the question, how does God, and, and you know, by looking at Jesus' treatment of these outsiders... How does God feel about and treat outsiders? That's it. That's a simple question, right? I think. So you're, you're seeing God reflected in Jesus' behavior here in these stories. How does he feel about? So focus on that first, feel about. And then how does that feeling or that, that sort of thinking lead him to treat people who are outsiders? These are five stories. The reason I'm giving you these stories are obviously because I think these stories into Jesus' character will help inform us, in my opinion, of the, uh, the issue at hand. How God works through Jesus to minister to people in other religions. In each one of these, these uh, settings, there's a, diff- a person from another religion that Jesus is interacting with. And Jesus didn't do a whole lot of that, actually. Paul did a whole lot more of it. And so I, I feel like these are important passages for us to kind of look back on. Okay, so how does God feel about and treat outsiders, uh, particularly religious outsiders? The first one is John 4, 1 through 30. This is the Samaritan woman story that many of you are familiar with. Again, pick whichever one you want to do. Uh, Luke 7, 1 through 10. This is the centurion's faith. So Luke 7, 1 through 10. John 4, 1 through 30. Uh, the Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, 21 through 27. And there are subtle differences, by the way, in how these stories are told from one gospel to another. Sometimes those, dis, uh, those dissimilarities are, are significant. You might want to look back through that. So Canaanite woman, this is the one where Jesus calls her a dog, uh, which you're like, that doesn't seem right. Um, so anyway, Matthew 15, 21 through 27. Uh, Luke 23, 26 through 43. Again, another common story. This is the thief on the cross. Luke 23. 26 through 43. And then this one's particularly challenging because it's a little bit more theology than it is um, actual interaction with a person. So you might not want to do this unless you just like really love to talk about theology, and particularly the theology of Israel versus, you know, Hellenistic people and all that stuff. So you might not want to do that one, but I don't know. This one's uh, uh, the Greek seeking Jesus, John 12, 20 through 50. John 12, 20 through 50. All right, so Samaritan woman, John 4, 1 through 30. Uh, Centurion's faith, Luke 7, 1 through 10. Canaanite woman, Matthew 15, 21 through 27. 
thief on the cross, Luke 23, 26 through 43, and then the Greek seeking Jesus, John 12, 20 through 50. If you do that one, the Greek seeking Jesus, just notice how that long response that he gives is in direct uh, uh, relation to the fact that these people have come to see him. That's what's significant about that passage, is just that his spiel is because these people have come to see him. All right, you good to go? Five, seven minutes? How does God, you know, read the story. How does God feel about and treat outsiders? Guys, it could be two people, it could be uh, six, but, but try to be in a group, okay? No pressure. Choose whichever one you want. Go. Five, seven minutes. Done. Uh, yeah, I mean, if this is something that you're interested in and, um, you know, looking for something to do kind of in a devotional time this next week, take one of these on. Try to do a little bit of research first to understand what it is you're eating. You know, what's the centurion? What is this Isaiah passage that seems to make God like a bad guy? Um, you know, read through some of it and, and spend some time just trying to answer that question. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the witness that we have continually throughout the scripture about God is that God doesn't play favoritism. Um, and, uh, you know, and Israel is really a, a great example of that, that he is really concerned about outsiders. Uh, in fact, if anything, the standards are considerably lower uh, for outsiders. I mean, you know, one of the things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he's like, what are you doing not judging the people inside your church? It's not my right to judge those outside of it. You, you know, you've, you've completely missed the mark. Uh, in, uh, in looking around you to find the sin that needs to be challenged uh, by pointing fingers at a whole lot of people uh, you know, outside that you have no real responsibility and no control over. Uh, and I want to follow up with two difficult questions before we meet for um, or, or break for communion, and that's who are your outsiders, right? I mean, sometimes that can be people who are not Christians. Sometimes it can be people within our own body. I mean, who are your primary outsiders, uh, the people who you really tend to think, and this question's been asked a million different ways, but who's outside for you? All of us have these groups. No matter how pluralistic we like to think of ourselves as, we have outside groups. Sometimes, if we're particularly pluralistic, our outside groups are those people who aren't pluralistic. <laughs> uh, uh, we, we browbeat people who don't have such liberated and intelligent views as us, and those are our outsiders. Um, and so, and then of course, I think the question that's really more important than that is how specifically can you be more like Christ in your interactions with them? Uh, because that's really the goal. I mean, you know, the, the, the passage here that I want to read to you is Matthew five forty three, and I'll just read it to you. Just listen to, you know, what our Lord says about this. Love your enemies. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Relating that back to, that's what God's children would do. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax electors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's very interesting we talk a lot about that 48 and kind of isolation that God wants us to be perfect. And yet that comes on the heel of perfection is being defined here as loving those people who are unlovable. Loving the people who are on the outside and not doing what's just common to all of us, which is loving those people who already love us back. And that's the challenge. And more importantly, that's the God that we serve. 
Lord, we thank you so much for um, loving us when we were on the outside of the fold. Um, when I was a punk freshman coming into college uh, with all kinds of issues, that you would love me still, uh, even as I cursed you uh, in a variety of ways. Um, that's the kind of God you are. We just celebrate that now as we think through uh, just the sacrifice you made for us out of your love for us while we were still enemies. Amen. Uh, for those of you who uh, are new, you know, we do communion pretty informally and loudly. Just grab the communion bread, dip it in the juice, and let's kind of quickly come back uh, instead of a long time of talking. So just, in fact, try not to talk out there. Come back so that we can move into our singing time and, uh, and wrap up, okay? Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.